If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Last week we were in Psalm 90, and this week Psalm 91. And so, encourage you to uh, go there. should be right about in the middle of your Bible. You know, uh, as always, please listen carefully as we uh, hear God's Word. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms again this morning to learn more about how to deal with our stress and our busyness and our lack of trust and how to pray about those things. And Lord, we don't like it when we don't know how to stop, when we don't know what to do when we don't know how or who or when to trust, when we're simply unable to find any kind of rest. And so we just keep going, and we just try harder, and we just do more, and yet we know that none of that is working. So Lord, once again, teach us what we should do, teach us what we should say, teach us what we should believe, teach us how we should pray. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through this psalm this morning, And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. Rhetorical question for you. Why do some men who never enter a kitchen, except to ask when dinner is ready, but are always ready to take charge of the barbecue? Now, it could be the pyromaniac tendencies of their inner child. Probably more truth than we want to admit. But I suspect it's often because they prefer busying themselves with the barbecue than making polite conversation with guests. Busyness can be a refuge. There's too many guys smiling at that because they know there's some truth there. Busyness can be a refuge. We can be busy in one area of our lives as a way of hiding 
from problems in other areas of our life. Some people stay late at work, take business trips, volunteer for extra projects, all because they prefer work to home. We fill our lives with commitments and activities to avoid facing issues. When we procrastinate, we seek refuge from busyness and often end up even more busy. But we can also find refuge in busyness itself. And the advantage of avoiding issues is that few people will criticize you for being a conscientious worker. Your boss doesn't complain that you're working overtime unless there's a financial crisis or something. I mean, we can fool ourselves. We can pride ourselves on being a good spouse and a good parent because we're a good provider. But the busyness prevents us from being the spouse or parent we should be. Furthermore, it's exhausting. And partly because we know we're so busy, but we're still not devoting enough time and energy uh, to the other important things of life, like our families. And there's certainly no bandwidth left over for devotion to God. He should be grateful we even make it here on Sunday. I mean, when you ask someone how they're doing, what are the top two answers? Busy and tired. How many of you have given one of those answers recently? Most of you. Nobody wants to put their hand way up here. However, our tiredness is not always physical tiredness. We can be mentally drained, emotionally worn out, spiritually burdened, and of course, E, all of the above. Unfortunately, the only thing we really know how to fix is physical tiredness. And so we take a vacation. Hesitant to say this because we're leaving on vacation on Thursday. But tell me, have you ever had a vacation or a long weekend, maybe just a day off, something you are really looking forward to, time away from the daily grind, you just knew you needed, you felt like, man, I need a break. And then you get to the actual vacation or the weekend or the day off, and you come out on the other side and it feels like it didn't even happen. You got your break, you got the uh, vacation uh, itself, the thing you thought you needed, the time uh, off that you wanted, but it didn't help. It didn't restore you or refresh you or give you the deep rest that you're looking for. Have you ever had that experience where you felt you needed a vacation from your vacation? I know I have. I don't think I'm the only one. One of the longest and most difficult lessons I've had to learn is that rest is not as easy as it sounds. And I think one of the reasons that rest is so hard for us is it's really easy for us to confuse it with other things. We confuse rest with not doing stuff. We confuse rest with self-indulgence. We confuse rest with any kind of frantic activity designed to make us feel better. I can remember when I started thinking about this question, what is rest, and how does rest actually become restful to my soul? It was March 12th, 2022. Because, as some of you know, on that day I had a heart attack. And I've been dealing with that ever since. Trying to keep up the exercise, keep losing weight, keep eating healthy, and it seems to get harder all the time. And after 16 months, I can say that I get tired earlier, and it takes longer to get stuff done. And so I've been reading a lot about the need for rest. And it's become clear to me that I still don't rest well. 
And that's true across the board. I don't rest well physically, mentally, emotionally, and most of all, spiritually. And my guess is that's probably true for a number of you as well. Tim Keller wrote about this. He said, there are two levels of rest. Just as sleep will not really refresh you at night if you don't get deep sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, right? So external rest, physical, emotional rest from your labor is not all you need. There needs to be a deep inner rest. And that's what you've got to have. And no amount of vacations can cure your restlessness if you don't learn how to get that deep inner rest. So finally, that brings us to Psalm 91. Because this psalm is talking about that deep inner rest. Although I think spiritual rest would be a better description. But it's not the kind of rest that we think it's going to be. It's the deep rest that we get from being in the presence of God. It connects our rest with our trust in God. No trust, no rest. So let's turn there now. We'll start with resting in the shadow of God's peace. Resting in the shadow of God's peace. For those of you who have an outline, shadow, that's your first blank in the outline. Let me ask, when you were little, did you have a secret hiding place? I did. It was the woods. Now, they weren't that big or that deep. In fact, if you go there today, you can see straight through to the houses on the other side. But when I was nine years old, the woods was like the deep, dark jungles of Africa. I grew up playing in the woods. And my friends and I would build these little hideouts uh, in the woods using whatever material we could uh, scrounge. We'd throw together a few pieces of discarded plywood and cover it with tree branches and make a secret clubhouse, no girls allowed. All we wanted was a refuge from parents and big sisters and the older boys in the neighborhood who could be bullies. And it was great. Psalm 91 is all about secret hiding places. It's about finding refuge. It's about protection from enemies and dwelling and safety and security. But not in some poorly constructed plywood play fort. Our spiritual fortress is God himself. He is our hiding place. As we see from this powerful opening statement, verses 1 and 2, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I mean, let's think about that. It's been hot and it's going to be hot. And you're out in the summer sun and you're working, playing, hiking, uh, whatever, you make note of the closest shady spot. I mean, I don't usually do that, but most of you will do that. I'm the one that likes the heat, remember? So as the heat beats down on you, you keep your eyes open for trees or awnings or covered porches so you can duck into the shade and rest. The shade always seems to exist just out of our reach. It's separate from us, and in order to enjoy it, we have to stop what we're doing and go get in the shade. But the psalmist describes a shade that we don't have to strain our eyes to find or hike a little further to discover. He says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
When we walk with the Lord, the shade of the Almighty is always with us. The temple is a fortress for the psalmist to shelter in, but the shadow of God covers him everywhere he went. Now, when a city is under attack, the people would run to find safety within the city walls. Those stone strongholds were their refuge. And they could find peace knowing those walls would stand. Dwelling within the city walls offers physical rest, but not spiritual rest. For that, they had to learn how to rest in a mighty God, a personal God who is an ever-present shelter in the storms of life and a constant shadow that cools us when we face the heat of trials. Every day we live behind the walls of a divine fortress. And we can always trust him even when we cannot see what he's doing or understand why he's doing it. So first thing is we rest in the shadow of God's peace. Second, we rest behind the shield of God's power, verses 3 and 4. The shield of God's power. The psalmist uses a couple different images in these next verses, and particularly one that draws from an experience with birds. Starting at verse 3, he says, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So he starts off by saying, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. Now, a fowler is a professional bird catcher. And his snare is likely a trap with a net. And that's because back then, birds were largely seen as pests. And they were used both for food and for sacrifices in the temple. And this is the kind of danger the psalmist is speaking of, entrapment and surprise and even death. And where do we find security in the midst of difficulty, danger, and disease? How do we avoid such powerful snares? We do that by staying behind the shield. And the psalmist says our shield is found in the faithfulness of God. The shield of God's power is being likened to the wings of the mother bird. Our safety is found not when we you know, thrash about wielding our own limited power, but when we settle behind the sustaining power of God. His faithfulness is the shield that deflects the arrows of betrayal, the blight of bitterness. But the psalmist also says, verse 4, and I keep saying the psalmist because we don't know who wrote it. Some think Moses wrote it because he wrote the psalm before. Many think David wrote it. We're not told. We don't know. Um, But he says, verse 4, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Now, the wings of God is actually a metaphor that's used Fairly often, particularly in the Old Testament, it evokes a familiar sight, that of a mother bird protecting her young by spreading her wings over them, protecting them from the uh, rain and from the sun and from predators. And the image of a mother bird protecting her young uh, with her wings conveys several things. On one hand, it conveys strength and protection, but on the other, also tenderness and love. And as I said, this metaphor shows up a lot Uh, in the Bible. Boaz says to Ruth in Ruth chapter 2, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. People think this psalm was written by David because he uses similar language in quite a number of other psalms. A few times he evokes 
the same imagery, Psalm 36. How priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low among men. Find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Psalm 61. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Over and over again, God is likened to a mother bird who protects her young with outstretched wings, protects them from the elements and from predators and so on. And that's important because the uh, majority of metaphors that describe God in the Bible, uh, the two most prominent ones are king and father. And they're overwhelmingly masculine. But the occasional metaphor of God as a mother bird, I think, is there to make sure we don't forget about the tender love of God. So we rest in the shadow of God's peace. We rest behind the shield of God's power. Third, and we'll spend a good amount of time here, uh, we rest in the security of God's promise. The security of God's promise, verses 5 through 13. So for those who rest in a shadow and behind a shield... The promises of the psalmist come in rapid succession. There are a whole lot here, starting at verse 5. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command the angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Now, forgetting that we live in a fallen world, We can take those promises to an extreme and say, nothing bad can ever happen to me. If we're under the shadow of God, behind the shield of God, then we live within the security of God. And the painful experiences that come our way do not necessarily mean that we have somehow stepped out of the shadow or been shoved away from the shield. God is with us even in our most trying times. And in time, he will deliver us, whether on earth or in heaven, And in the meantime, he promises never to leave us. But in the middle of this psalm, it describes God's protection. These statements are incredibly sweeping. It seems to say that if you trust God, you won't experience violence. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. It seems to be saying that you won't experience any violence against you, nor will you experience disease. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Down in verse 10, it says, no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. So no harm, no disaster, no violence, no sickness. And it goes as far to say, verse 12, that you won't even stub your toe. The angels will lift you up in your hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. It looks like that's what it's saying. At first glance, it seems to be saying, if you trust God, nothing bad will happen to you. 
If you trust God, your life will be fine. Of course, that would also imply the opposite, that if your life's not going well, then you must not be trusting God, if you're not being faithful to him in, in some way. So is that how we should read it? If you trust God, everything will go well, and if things don't go well, it means you're not trusting God. Is that what it's saying? I don't think so. And I think you know you shouldn't read it that way. There's a couple reasons uh, that you shouldn't read it that way that should give you pause. And the first one is that a few months ago, we finished the book of Job. Now, if you remember, Job experiences a lot of these things. He experiences disaster. He experiences violence. Harm overtakes him. Disease and pestilence overcome him. A lot of the things it says won't happen to you if you trust God happen to Job. And then Job's friends. They come to see him, and they definitely see it this way. They show up and say, Job, if you trust God, he wouldn't let bad things happen to you. However bad things are happening to you, therefore, you must not be trusting God. That's what they say multiple times. But of course, you know, at the end of the book, God shows up. And what does he say to Job's friends? Job 42.7, I am angry with you and your friends because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. God's looking at these guys and they're saying, if you trust God, bad things don't happen. And if bad things are happening, it's because you don't have enough faith. And God looks them right in the eye and says, you have not spoken truth about me. Now, having read the book of Job, you have to realize you can't read Psalm 91 that way either. Otherwise, you're being like Job's friends. If you read it that way, God says, you have not spoken of me what is right. The next reason we shouldn't read Psalm 91 that way is because Satan wants you to read it that way. There is one place in the Bible where Satan quotes scripture And the scripture he quotes is Psalm 91. So whenever you're reading Psalm 91, remember Satan knows this psalm too. So what does he do with it? Ah, that's hot. Um, Well, if you go to Matthew or Luke, you'll see Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And what he's doing there is trying to derail Jesus, trying to get Jesus to change mission. He's tempting Jesus with idolatry. And one of the ways he does it is by quoting Psalm 91. We see that in Luke chapter 4. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verse 11, to Jesus. And he says, if God lets you suffer, he's not being true to his word. But God promises that you won't suffer, so if you suffer, God can't be trusted. And Satan knows if you believe that, if you read Psalm 91 like that, he knows what it'll do to you. It will lead to disappointment. You'll be more anxious. You'll grow angry and bitter. It will derail your life and you'll pull back from God. And you'll never get to know the powerful promise that is actually here in Psalm 91. A promise that Satan doesn't want you to know. 
I mean, there has to be something powerful given to us here in Psalm 91 that the forces of darkness want you to misread it. Well then, how do we read it right? What does it mean that God protects us? This is one of those cases we need the whole counsel of God. Lots of other verses that address this. There's three key passages. I'm not going to go through them in great detail. Uh, the first one's the end of the Joseph story, Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, remember they sold him into slavery and now he's in a position to rescue them. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Second one's basically an elaboration of that. It's well known. It's often quoted. But listen carefully. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Often quoted, not often understood. Notice when it says all things work together. That little word together is important. This verse is not saying, well, all these bad things are really good things. Or it's not even saying that even bad things are actually good if you just look at them the right way. No. Bad things are bad. God didn't create a world with evil, violence, war, sickness, and death. He didn't create the world that way. They're all the result of sin that's come into the world. But when he says all things, even the terrible things, even the most terrible things, work together for good, what that means is that even though those things are terrible... Somehow God is bringing his power to bear in such a way that we will see that every bad thing that has happened in the end has brought about something better. And it means the evil intentions of evildoers will be utterly thwarted. Evil will be defeated. Every bad thing that happens in the end will lead to something more glorious than if it hadn't happened. So that's the second passage. Third passage I think most important to help us read Psalm 91 correctly, we find in the Gospel of Luke, it's one of Jesus' own statements, not nearly as well known as the others. It's his statement in Luke 21. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So Jesus says, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Wait, what? Did he really say that? And then he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. God is not going to let you keep the things that you love more than him. He is going to bring things into your life, hard things, bad things, even terrible things, to get you to divest yourself of what's keeping you from him. I've said this before. Many times people will come to me, Dr. Dave, I've hit rock bottom, and I'm like, oh no. (laughs) If you don't repent, it's going to get way worse. God will bring you down so much farther as far as it takes to get you to return to him. And people have a hard time hearing that. But he wants you to find your new life, your real life, your rest by trusting him so that you can say he is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You can't read Psalm 91 saying God is going to let me keep all the things I love more than him. 
that would actually wind up being a bad thing for you. You have to recognize what he's saying. I will protect you. I'll protect the real you. I'll protect the you that will last forever. I will protect the only part of you that really matters. It means you must trust God in trouble in order to become a person who can handle trouble, not trusting that God will prevent trouble or somehow make you exempt from trouble. And that would end up being unhelpful because then you wouldn't need refuge. Then you wouldn't need a fortress. You wouldn't have to trust him. But you do need refuge. You do need a fortress. And you do need to trust him. And that brings us to the last three verses. So again, we rest in the shadow of God's peace. We rest behind the shield of God's power. We rest in the security of God's promise. And finally, we rest in the sureness of God's protection. I had surety, but I wasn't sure everybody knew what it meant. So his sureness sounded better. Psalm 4, uh, uh, verses 14 through 16. Notice who's speaking here. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life while I satisfy him and show him my salvation. These last three verses are kind of an oracle. It's God speaking directly to the reader. By the way, it not only shows what I'm saying is right, but it shows how you get the power to trust him when troubles happen. Look at verse 15. It says, I will be with him in trouble. There it is. It doesn't say, I will be with him and prevent trouble from happening. If you had read the rest of the psalm wrong, you get to verse 15 and you'd say, what's that doing there? He should have said, I will protect you from trouble. But no, it says, I'll protect you in trouble. I will be with you in trouble. That shows you need to read Psalm 91 in line with what the rest of the Bible says in order to understand it properly. Now, here's what's great about that line, I will be with him in trouble. It points forward to the New Testament. It points forward to the gospel. It points forward to Jesus. How so? Well, think about it. What does it mean when you're reading, I will be with him in trouble? We may think that means I'll feel God's presence in trouble. But actually, God went a whole lot farther than that. Look at the lengths that he's gone to literally be with us in trouble. And you don't know that until you get to the story of Jesus, until you get to the Gospels. And there we're told something about God that no other religion claims. Only Christianity makes the claim that the transcendent creator God, who actually was exempt from trouble, chose to experience trouble. He became a man born in a manger, experienced betrayal, wrongdoing, injustice, what it was like to be beaten, what it was like to die. The invulnerable God became vulnerable. The immortal God became mortal. He went to the cross. When he says, I will be with you in trouble, it's the first thing you need to tell yourself when bad things happen. What does it mean to take shelter under his wings? What does it mean to really rest in him? How are you going to do that? When bad things are happening and you feel like, Lord, why is all this happening to me? The first thing we have to remind ourselves is, Lord, you know what I'm going through. That's the first thing you need in order to rest in him. You know what I'm going through. You've experienced far worse than this. That's important. This doesn't just point to the incarnation, it points to substitution. 
How so? It talks about rescue. It talks about salvation. It talks about grace. But not until you get to the New Testament do we understand what that really means. You know, I told you that there was this metaphor of the mother bird here in the psalm. It conveys the idea of strength and protection and love and tenderness. But it also conveys substitution. Think about it. The mother bird is spreading her wings over her young to protect them from the rain. Well, how does she protect the young from the rain? She gets wet. How does she protect the young from the sun? She gets hot. How does she protect them from predators? She gets attacked. She puts herself between the bad things and her loved ones, and she takes it on herself. There's only one time when Jesus identifies with a mother bird. It's when he's riding into Jerusalem, and he's talking about judgment. And he's talking about the people of Jerusalem being judged for their sins. That judgment is coming down. He's talking about judgment and he says, Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. It's easy to read that and say, that that sounds sweet. It's not. It's a lament. He's talking about judgment coming down. And in that context, he says, if you only believed in me, then you would take shelter under my wings. Shelter from what? From judgment. That's how he protects us. True story. I don't know if you can remember about 10 years ago, massive uh, wildfires in Yellowstone National Park. And you can go back and look that up. And National Geographic, and I heard that's recently going out of business. That's sad. But National Geographic published a fascinating article. It said after the park, park rangers went into all the parts of the park that had been ravaged by the fires to sort of get an idea of what it was like. And two park rangers were walking along, and they saw this tree. It was just a charred stump. And at the base of the tree, there was this spooky sight. It was a mother bird still sitting upright in her nest. But she had been completely burned to a crisp. She was charred, basically ash, but still sitting there completely upright. And it was really sad. One of the park rangers took a stick and knocked it over. And three little chicks ran out from underneath. True story. Park rangers realized the reason the chicks lived when the heat came is the mother did her thing. She stayed there and let the fire come down and envelop her. When Christ was on the cross, he looked at people betraying him. He looked at people denying him. He looked at people abandoning him. He looked at people mocking him and jeering at him. And in the greatest act of love, he stayed there and was burned to a crisp by the judgment of God, by the fires of the wrath of God. He took what, he, what we deserved. That's substitution. And that's the key to understanding Psalm 91. If you read Psalm 91 and say, well, if you trust in God, God's not going to let anything bad happen to you. Well, think about it. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever completely trusted in God. Did anything bad happen to him? Absolutely. Why? Because through those hard things, bad things, the most terrible thing, the cross, God brought redemption. God brought salvation. 
God will protect those who dwell in him from his judgment. Go back to verse 8. It says, thousands will fall, ten thousands will fall. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. You won't be punished. You won't be judged. We need to see that Psalm 91 is not promising that God will protect us from every hardship or every evil in this life. We know that's not true. Rest is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of trust. Trust that the peace comes from God. Trust in his power to overcome evil. Trust in his promise to be with us in trouble. And trust in his protection. It is promising we will be kept from God's judgment. And sometimes that means we'll be spared from some effects of evil in this life. And sometimes we will suffer the effects of evil. Sometimes it means we will be protected uh, in trouble and in hardship. And sometimes it means we'll have to endure trouble and hardship. But it surely means that we will always be kept safe from ultimate harm because of what Christ did. He took the judgment. He was sacrificed so we could be saved. On January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were speared to death by members of the Warani tribe in Ecuador. They were seeking to bring the gospel to him. Jim Elliot was 28 years old. So was Elizabeth Elliot, his widow, was she naive and unbiblical when she wrote her husband's biography and titled it Shadow of the Almighty, a title taken from Psalm 91? Was it a brave and insightful title for the story of a man who died an untimely and violent death? Or was it naive and unbiblical? She was asked that question. When I was at seminary, she used to teach there. And she would just give impromptu classes anywhere, in the cafeteria, things like that. She's with the Lord now, but she was asked that question many times. And a lot of people considered her confidence in God's sovereignty to be a little bit misplaced. She took serious criticism for saying all this was the will of God. And here's her answer. You can read it on the last pages of that book, Shadow of the Almighty. She finishes it by saying, They trusted implicitly in the blood of the Lamb that it absolutely secured their future happiness forever. What did she mean by that? Well, she meant that if God sees fit to let the arrow that flies by day or a Wairani spear to kill one of his children, God has done it for the sake of gain. Remember, Jim Elliot is the one who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God has done it for gain, not loss. And I think she's right. And I think he was right. And I think that's a good interpretation of Psalm 91. Now, earlier I mentioned Romans 8, 28. Uh, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those called according to his purpose. We know that. But we forget that right after, a few verses later, the Apostle Paul wrote, Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? might have added, or a Wairani spear. And then he quotes Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake, not sin's sake, your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Even the Psalms knew that God's people die while doing good. But then he shouts the answer, no. In all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Apostle Paul is saying Christians can keep themselves in the love of God and in the shadow of the Almighty and still be slaughtered like sheep and yet be more than conquerors. How? How are you more than conquerors? Because the very arrow that seemed to get the victory becomes your servant by accomplishing God's sovereign purpose in your life. And God's saving purpose for your life is his everlasting presence. That's how the book of Revelation puts it. (coughs) Revelation 12. And they conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How do you dwell in the shelter of the Most High? They opened their mouth and gave testimony, and the fear of death did not stop them. And in that moment, they were safe in the shadow of the Almighty, and they conquered Satan. They trusted implicitly in the blood of the Lamb that had absolutely secured their future happiness forever. And not just theirs, but yours. And that's a truth that you can rest in, both now and forever. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to trust you, to rest in you, to know that you will use all things, good and bad, to accomplish your sovereign purpose in our lives. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Teach us to rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Teach us to say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So, Lord, continue to work in each of our hearts this summer. As we turn to the Psalms, as we learn about prayer, and draw us ever closer to the one who shelters us under his wings, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.